Hey everyone, it's Ramon and welcome to the Human Optimization Podcast, science-based tools to optimize your physiology, master your mind, and unlock your potential. Now before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Brain First, earth-grown, evidence-based nutrition. One of the products that I love and I take every workday to fire up my brain and get laser-like focus and interflow quickly is Genius Mode. Now, it took me years of research and testing to formulate Genius Mode for Brain First because I was sick of having dozens of bottles and powders to have to mix together all the different ingredients to give me the effect that I wanted. So Genius Mode has the best science-backed ingredients for peak mental performance in meaningful doses supported by experimental data. I personally take it shortly after I wake up and the focus and the drive and the motivation and the mental clarity lasts me all day. Now to get Genius Mode, use code RAMON for 10% off in addition to any other subscription discounts that you get on the BrainFirst website. Just head to mybrainfirst.com and you'll see a bunch of reviews from other people who are absolutely loving this product. mybrainfirst.com, code RAMON for 10% off and get your brain an instant upgrade. Let's get into the episode. Enjoy my friends. In this episode, Nate Klemp joins me on the show. Nate is a writer, philosopher, and entrepreneur. He's the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Start Here, Master the Lifelong Habit of Wellbeing. Uh, some of you may have read about Nate in issue four of Brain First Magazine, so you'll already know that he's a super interesting dude and has a lot to offer us when it comes to upgrading our brain and life. Uh, Nate, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's great to have you here. Why don't we start off with how you got into the well-being and performance space? Uh, because it's a super interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I took a bit of a circuitous path. I guess it starts when I was an undergraduate. I was at uh, Stanford University in the late 90s. And I got really interested in philosophy at the time. And I thought that philosophy was going to help me learn how to live a good life, experience human flourishing. You know, Aristotle calls it eudaimonia. And uh, that that was kind of the, the path that was going to give me the answers to the big questions in life. And so that's what I did. I, I majored in philosophy as an undergrad. I got a master's in philosophy. I then ended up getting a PhD. Um, and after about 10 or so years of really intense philosophical training, something unexpected happened. So I was just about to finish my PhD. And I started to notice that my own life was far worse than it had been before. I looked at the graduate students and the, you know, these luminaries on the Princeton faculty, which is where I was. Um, and, and nobody seemed to, to be thriving uh, in fact, it seemed to be just the opposite. Um, so it was a, a really interesting transition for me because um, I felt fairly disillusioned about the uh, field of academic philosophy, but I also had this extreme motivation to understand how to experience well-being and resilience not just as a conceptual theoretical idea, which is what I was used to playing with in the realm of philosophy, but as an actual lived experience. And so that took me out of academia eventually. I was a professor for about four years, but got really interested in what I would call 
inner technologies of the mind, things like mindfulness, meditation, yoga, um, various methods of inquiry. And so that was about, I don't know, 12 years ago. And since then, that's basically been my passion in life. I've been using my days on this planet as a, a kind of laboratory testing ground for various practices and also built a business around it called Life Cross Training. And then there's the book that, that came out of that whole process, Start Here, that I wrote with Eric Langsher. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. How, how far into the 10 years did you, like, was it right at the end of the 10 years of study that you realized that it wasn't doing it for you? Or did you have some insights along the way? Was it more of a, um, was it something that progressed and eventually you sort of came to the realization that, okay, this really isn't doing, isn't doing it for me. Like how did that kind of eventuate? Cause I can't imagine it, it went 10 years of study following that track mm-hmm. and then just completely changed overnight or did it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think that the, the way it played out for me anyway, is that my early motivation for studying philosophy really was this kind of lofty goal about living a better life. And then as I progressed and got further into the training, that sort of slipped away and my motivation became more about landing a, the right fellowship or getting a great professorship or, you know, getting published in different journals. And so the moment that I really started to notice that there was a disconnect between my early motivation and the way I was living my life was really in my final year of grad school. And there are a few things that happened. One, I had a pretty serious bike accident, but the other is the, just the sheer stress of, of what I was dealing with, with the accident and um, the fact that the academic labor market is so incredibly tight that almost nobody gets a job and you're competing against your fellow graduate students. All of that set up basically the perfect conditions for me for the first time in my life to feel like I was just in a state of fatigue, anxiety, and really lacked control over my own level of focus and resilience. And that was the first time I experienced it in such an acute way. Um, And so that became a real motivator for me to figure out, you know, how to more skillfully train my mind and my emotional fitness and things like that. And when was the, uh, and as you started on the the journey or or the next phase, let's call it, what, where, when was the point at which you kind of realized, yeah, I've got some of these fundamentals down now, of course, you know, mm. it's, this is a lifelong journey, but when mm. did you, how far into it did you sort of realize, Hey, yeah, I've got some of these fundamentals down now. I've, I really feel that my life has changed um, fairly dramatically from where it was. Yeah. I would say after a few years of doing some of these practices, I started to have that experience and it was really about two or three years into my role as a professor. I was a professor at Pepperdine. I took a sabbatical and started this crazy blog called life beyond logic, where the idea was I was going to take a philosophical idea and live it for a week, you know, Mm. instead of studying it, which is the traditional method that philosophers use these days. And it was really an attempt to sort of, 
bring my study of philosophy back into contact with what's often called like the art of living philosophers. So people like Plato and Aristotle or Emerson and Thoreau. And, and so that was the point where I had the courage to do something that was really risky in my career. And a lot of people who I, you know, my colleagues were like, you're crazy. What are you doing? <laughs> Um, but it kind of gave me the confidence that there was something here, both at the level of people are interested in this, but also at the level of I'm experiencing changes in my life that are positive and these new habits are really starting to take root. And so, yeah, I would say that's, that's when I started experiencing some change. And then I think, um, you know, that was about 10 years ago, um, since then, there's just a gradual, slow deepening of the practice. I'm sure anybody who's, who's been doing this for a while has experienced that, that it's, it's not nothing overnight. There's nothing instantaneous, no huge epiphanies, but it's just kind of continual deepening mm. and strengthening of the habits. Yeah, certainly. Um, I feel that way. Like way back in the, the early days, it was like, oh, I've got to level one and now I'm sort of at level two and then level three. And then it's kind of just the gradual uh, little bit at a time, you know, not really um, shifting in these big leaps as uh, I think I did in the, in the much earlier days. Um, When you were, were living this, these ideas for a week at a time, was there one of these practices that really stood out to you as, wow, I'm onto something. Hmm. Well, one of my favorite practices came from the 19th century psychologist, William James, who was one of the early pragmatists and psychologists. He was a professor at Harvard, and he wrote an essay called Habit, which is a pretty interesting essay. If you go back and read it, you know, it was written in the late 19th century, and he's basically describing neuroplasticity. He's talking about the plastic nature of the brain and our habits and a really amazing essay for its time period. But one of the things he says at the end of the essay is he says that one of the keys to developing new habits is to build this ability to break out of ordinary routine. And so the way he prescribed to do that is to do one daring thing a day or one thing that you just rather not do to cultivate this ability to step outside of the ordinary uh, superhighways of habit. And so that was really fun. And it's a practice I think about to this day, you know, because I think we can all get caught in our habits. So for me, it was um, just thinking of what are the things I avoid? What are the things I resist? And what if every day I were to just consciously go into one of those things, right? So I don't like being cold. And I, you know, jumped in the Pacific Ocean in the middle of winter at that time. And, you know, things like that. Um, nothing huge, but things that just kind of push you out of that ordinary comfort zone that it's so easy to get sucked into. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned this, actually. My thing at the moment is um, getting up early. Mm. Like my entire life, I've been a night owl. Um, I require quite a lot of sleep probably because I train really hard, like I work out really hard and have high volume and high intensity workouts. Yeah. Um, but getting up, particularly in the early days in health and fitness when I had like 6 a.m. clients was awful. Mm-hmm. And so I, after I finished dealing with um, 
you know, having a, a full uh, one-on-one client load, I decided never again will I get up early. I'll never uh. set an alarm again. And then lately, um, I've, um, you know, depending on uh, which uh, chronotype scale I look at, I always come up, up as evening nurse or have a look at like um, uh, Michael Bruce's Power of When, it's Wolf, so it's always evening nurse stuff. But then recently mm-hmm. I had a look at, at this from a genetic point of view uh, and it turns out I don't have specific clock genes for morningness or eveningness, which mm-hmm. probably means that it's been habitual, right? It's just been a pattern that I've carried through uh, yeah. into later life. So I thought, yeah. right, well, I have no real genetic need for this, so I'm going to start getting up earlier. And it sucks. <laughs> like it's it's awful. Yeah. But it's the one daring thing. Like you doing the like the getting in cold water, getting up early, right. it's the one awful thing that I do every day and I remind myself I'm doing this because of what it means and, and uh, it's important to me. Um, I love that. What, yeah. what are you avoiding or what are you resisting and then bringing that into your life? That's very cool. Yeah, and I, I think the other interesting thing about that practice is that what I've found through experimenting with this for many years now is that there's a kind of freedom that lives on the other side of fear and resistance. Mm. So, you know, for all of us, we have a different list of things, but there are things we might avoid or we're afraid of, or, you know, we just habitually resist or contract around. And I find that if you're able to go into those experiences and stay relaxed and be open and stay present with whatever's happening as you're going through it, um, there's a, a kind of strange experience of freedom on the other side because where there was once a limit and where there was once resistance, it, it now no longer exists, right? And, and so there's a way in which, at least for me, it feels like there's a real expansion in my experience of life, my experience of the world. So, you know, I don't think it's just a purely masochistic thing. It's actually, uh, you know, a way to, to really start to feel a bit more free in your life. Mm, mm, absolutely. So just going back to well-being for a moment, what, for our listeners, what is well-being? What does it mean to you? Why is it important? Yeah, well, I think my views on this have been evolving. And lately, the way I would define well-being, at least as I'm thinking about it, is uh, the ability to live skillfully in the modern world. And the reason I put modern in there is I really do think we're living in a unique time in human history. You know, the iPhone only comes on the scene about 13 years ago in 2007. And what's um, come through that process of technological change is a condition where we're facing constant distraction. Um, And Mm. there's so much information available to us, so many notifications beckoning for our attention that I think the way I think about well-being now is really you know, how does one ensure that you're doing the work you love, you're following your highest values when it comes to your life and your family in the midst of this kind of crazy state where you're constantly being um, 
ask to divert, divert your attention to whatever is on your cell phone or whatever text just came through or, or even fighting your own urge to, you know, open up your email program. Um, so for me, well-being is really that ability to more mindfully and more skillfully navigate the, the kind of conditions of distraction that we face. And, and to do that in a way where, you know, you feel alive, you feel happy, you feel um, a sense of resilience and ability to go through the big challenges that, that life brings your way. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a kind of very modern contextual way of thinking about it, but, but it seems like the, the set of problems many people I work with anyway are dealing with. How much of this, uh, you know, distraction and all of the other things that um, come with living in the modern world, how much of that is external and how much of that is self-imposed, do you think, with, yeah. mo with most people? Well, I think it's a great question. And I, I think there is a bit of both going on. So, you know, the research on this, which is fairly new, tells us that um, a lot of it is external, right? That, um, you know, when you're working, for example, and you receive a notification and you divert your attention, it can take as much as 20 minutes to get back to the task at hand. That was some research by Microsoft and Gloria Mark at uh, UC Irvine. So there's research like that that tells us, you know, research on multitasking that tells us it's, it's very difficult for us to attend to multiple streams of information at the same time. And that uh, it actually leads to a, a loss of effective IQ that's similar to smoking pot or skipping a night of sleep, right? So, mm. so there's like, there's definitely this external story. But I think the deeper source of the problem is internal. Um, and one of my favorite scientific experiments was one that was done in 2010 at Harvard where they found that the average person spends about 47% of the day in a state of mind wandering. So in other words, lost in thoughts about the past or thoughts about the future. And they not only found that, but they found that when you mind wander, you tend to be less happy. So that, in other words, there's a correlation between this perpetual state of mind wandering and stress and unhappiness. And I think that's important because what that shows is that we're dealing with these kind of fixed internal conditions of distraction that the mind itself, you know, even in the absence of a smartphone and a computer and all the uh, technological gadgets we have, the mind itself is producing a constant source of distraction that we have to navigate. Um, and then on top of that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I think for many people, I'll speak for myself, there's a, a kind of addiction at times to this distraction, that there's an addiction to, to the internal state of mind wandering, but there's also um, an addiction to shifting out of uncomfortable states by picking up the phone or watching a TV program or listening to a podcast even. Um, so I do think that we're dealing with some pretty intense barriers on both the external and the internal level. And that's why, you know, at least my point of view is that we can't just like try to be more focused, that it actually requires some real training because 
we're walking upstream as it were, right? We're, we're dealing with some real friction in the system. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, um, you know, maybe I've got something, maybe I've got a, a podcast to do and, um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe like I'm a little nervous to speak to the guest or something like that. Uh, and, uh, I want to avoid that feeling. So when I'm starting to think about maybe doing preparation for it and I've got that feeling, it's almost like I've got an instant emotion regulation strategy there in distraction. I know that I can pick up my phone. I can go to Facebook. I can get a dopamine hit. I can distract myself from that uncomfortable feeling and it's instant. It's within arm's reach. And of course, that's going to be so much easier than sitting with the emotion or using some kind of other um, antecedent focused emotion regulation strategy, right? So it's, it's almost like the modern yeah. world has provided us with this super simple way of uh, regulating our state in ways that may take us away from the more important and meaningful work, right? I totally agree. And one of the metaphors I use here is, you know, we understand this when it comes to nutrition, you're sitting around your house late at night, you feel a little bit hungry and there's this draw to junk food, right? To just down a pint of Ben and Jerry's or a bag of chips or whatever it is. Right. And I think that in the realm of information, there's an equivalent, which is something that you might call junk information. Right. So in other words, it's, it's, information or news or some novelty-based alert or notification that gives you a really quick hit of pleasure, but it's ultimately unsatisfying. Mm. And so for me, for example, the news is, has been one of the most problematic, um, you know, where I, I feel, you know, scared and upset when I read the news and yet there's something about that state that's almost exhilarating and, and has a draw to it. And so you're right. I think part of the practice is to become more comfortable with just, you know, some of the, the states that come and go. And, and I think the mindfulness tradition is really telling us that when you stop diverting your attention to these distractions and you can be present with whatever arises, that it's always changing and it, 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 it has a way of, of transforming some of the states, you know, so if it's fear or anxiety, staying with that actually has this really interesting effect over time, even though in the moment it's uncomfortable. What's something for our listeners, something simple that they can do to improve their well-being today so whether they're a beginner or yeah. they've been doing this for a while, um, maybe they're only coming across some of these concepts for the first time, something really simple that everyone can do uh, today to improve their well-being. Yeah, well, one of the tools we talk a lot about in the book Start Here is something we call Notice Shift Rewire, which is a pretty basic technology of the mind, if you will, that is designed to help you begin to see when you're getting caught in some of these states that are unproductive, problematic for various reasons, and helps you shift out of that state. So it's really three parts, right? Notice, shift, rewire. The first part is notice. And noticing is really the whole game. 
Noticing is awareness, right? Noticing is being able to have um, some level of consciousness around what's happening in your mind, what's happening in your uh, current situation. So for example, if, if I'm, you know, getting ready for the podcast or, or a big talk like you described, and I feel that urge to pick up my phone or I feel that urge to dive into, you know, TikTok or uh, oh, Instagram TikTok. Oh, or God. Snapchat, right? <laughs> Not that I use those. I think those are, um, yeah, very problematic. Yep. But, but like feeling that urge and noticing that is a huge accomplishment because for the most part, we feel the urge to pick up the phone. We do the whatever the habit is. So that noticing step is really key. And, and then once you notice, the next step is shift, which is to make an intentional choice about where you want to place your attention. You know, so do I want my attention to be directed toward videos of people dancing on TikTok for 15 seconds to some random song? Or do I want to direct my attention to the sound of the wind outside, the you know, the sensations of exhilaration that are in my body because I'm about to go out on stage or whatever it is. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways you can shift the mind. What we think of in LifeXT is that, you know, there are a number of different um, sort of targets you can hit. So one place you might direct your attention is toward the present moment, just the, the sensations, the sights you're seeing. Another place you might direct your attention is toward a simple gratitude practice of just thinking about one thing you're grateful for in that moment. Um, so there's a lot of different ways you can go with that, but it really just starts to give you more choice and more flexibility around where your attention is directed. And then the last step is to rewire. And the thought there is that, you know, once you've shifted and, and brought your attention to this more productive object of concentration, rewiring is really just savoring that experience for even just 10 or 15 seconds to really allow that to encode in your system and, and to, to sort of build the new habit, right? So for example, if I'm shifting to a greater awareness of the present moment, rewiring is just savoring what it's like to simply be in the moment with nothing to do, you know, the, the sight of the sun on my window, the, the sound of the, uh, of the wind, you know, going through the trees, things like that. So that would be just a really simple tool that you can use anytime, anywhere. It doesn't take time out of your day. You know, it's something that you can sort of stack on top of ordinary routines. Um, and we found it to be quite powerful. Speaking of uh, routines, I know that I personally believe that a good morning routine can help set the day up so that we can, mm. uh, you know, live the day that we would ultimately, um, in, in a way that we would ultimately like to live it. Of course, throughout the day, we can restart a bad day. But I think if we start off on the right foot, it's much easier to keep that momentum going. What's your morning routine? And do you have... Uh, a particular reason for each of the elements of, of why you've done it in a particular order or, or why you're including each of these uh, components perhaps? Yeah, well, my morning routine is pretty simple. It usually includes some movement, 
So it's either a strength training practice or yoga. And then that's generally followed by a seated meditation for somewhere around a half an hour. And the reason I do yoga or strength training is simply that I found in my career as an entrepreneur and a writer where I'm sitting at a computer all day for <laughs> days of the week that um, it requires a certain amount of flexibility, but also core strength just to keep my body from getting injured. And I know that sounds crazy, but as somebody who, you know, I spent the last six months writing a book, so I, I was very intensely writing this book and injury was one of the big things I had to deal with. So I just find that that kind of a practice for me is really important, both for injury prevention, but also, you know, the yoga has an effect of really kind of calming the nervous system and um, setting up my breath for the rest of the day so that it's a bit more relaxed and fluid. You know, in yoga, they have an expression that the mind follows the breath, which makes a lot of sense. If your breath is short and choppy, you're going to be somewhat anxious and agitated. If you've got a smoother, longer breath, you'll notice a pretty profound shift in your mental and emotional state. So that's the first piece. Like you do, you, you do that straight up first thing in the morning, you get out of bed at a certain time and then straight into it. Yeah. I mean, I'll like go get a glass of water and then boom, just right into it. Yep. And, uh, and then the, Seated meditation practice is based on an open awareness practice. So I do uh, a Dzogchen style of meditation, which is eyes open. Um, and it's a different kind of practice from what's called focused attention meditation in the sense that you're not really trying to focus on anything in particular with Dzogchen or open awareness meditation. It's more a practice of relaxing into awareness itself. And so what I love about that practice is I'm essentially sitting there for 30 minutes, just kind of watching everything that's happening, watching the mind, you know, thoughts come through, emotions come through, um, watching the sunrise right now. That's about when I'm meditating at that time. Um, and so, and that practice for me is really important because it, uh, it helps me really stabilize my mental state. And also researchers call this meta awareness. It develops this quality of being able to kind of see the contents of the mind from a more objective perspective, more of an outside perspective, which sounds like a subtle thing, but it, um, at least in my life, it has made a huge difference you know, and allowing me to sort of let some of these uncomfortable emotions or thoughts or states just move through. So that's the routine. I don't have any, like, I don't do the cold shower thing. <laughs> Those <laughs> crazy know, people. Jumping jacks or <laughs> headstand for 10 minutes or anything like that. Well, you're one of these morning people though, aren't you? Because like getting out of bed and going straight into a strength training or a yoga routine is pretty tough. Yeah, I am. I, I wake up at about five. Most oh days. my God. I um, hate you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I also have a daughter, you know, who's eight years old. So that actually helps me. She goes to bed at eight or eight 30. So we just go to bed at the same time and then I get up two hours before she does. <laughs> and, um, and breakfast. 
yeah, so I am on what I would call a mostly keto diet uh, mm-hmm. with a heavy emphasis on potassium. Mm-hmm. I actually am working with this amazing acupuncturist who did a PhD in Beijing in acupuncture, and he's a big believer in high potassium diets as a way of almost like smoothing out the nervous system. Um, so my breakfast is often, you know, a few eggs, uh, lots of greens, and then maybe some protein powder, maybe a couple pieces of bacon. Um, (laughs) it's, uh, yeah, pretty simple breakfast. And you, um, opt for a potassium rich diet or you supplement with potassium as well? I actually try to get it all through plant sources. So, um, you know, if you're doing both keto and high potassium, that means you're avoiding things like bananas and sweet potatoes. So the best source for sort of plant-based potassium I found is things like kale, spinach, uh, beet greens. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll eat a lot of spinach and I make kale pesto every week and just have that on hand. So it's mm, lovely. kind of a constant inflow of those nutrients. Mm. Did you find that, well, this is one of the things that I found when I transitioned to um, intermittent fasting, which I did for about five years. Then I went mm. very strict keto for about a year and I've only just yeah. started to reintroduce um, going back more to a moderate um, carbohydrate diet, mostly because of the high yeah. volume of training. Otherwise, if I was sitting on my butt for most of the day, I'd probably yeah. still go intermittent fasting and keto because it's just sustained yeah. energy. Did you find when you made that transition at like writing, sitting down and writing and doing all these things became a lot uh, easier, like your focus and your attention and sustained energy and all of that? Yeah, I do find that there's just a more balanced flow of energy throughout the day. So Mm. one of the things I really noticed on a higher carbohydrate diet is that there were these kind of big fluctuations. So right after eating, I might either get a spike of tiredness or a big spike of energy, but then, (laughs) then, you know, that would change. And so what I enjoy about a lower carbohydrate diet, at least for me, what works for me is that the, energy level feels much more stable and balanced. And that becomes much more conducive for me anyway, when I'm writing or even things like public speaking, you know, I find that um, I was actually working with a woman who's a nutritionist at the Aspen club, which is here in Aspen, Colorado. I live in Colorado. And she was doing a lot of research showing that, um, the, especially with simple carbs and sugars, there's a, uh, a correlation between that and activating the stress response in the body. So, you know, um, by eating a very high carbohydrate diet, especially simple carbs and sugars, you're essentially, you know, firing the fight or flight system at a higher level. You know, you're, it's like adding gasoline to that particular system. Mm. So when you're doing things that are um, high intensity, public speaking, uh, really intense writing, you know, I think it makes sense to kind of dial that back a little bit. Otherwise it can be almost overwhelming and and it feels like a, a bit more draining, at least for me in my experience. Yeah, no, same. 
uh, and also not having to stop every two or three hours and get something to eat. If you know right. you're you're right in the flow of something and and you're really focused, and it's like, yes. and you start to feel that energy coming down. Oh, I've got to stop and and go and yeah. you know make something to eat now, and that's going to take half an hour out of my day. And what a pain right. in the ass that is. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Yeah. Totally. What what's the yeah. what's the number one thing that you do for your brain health and or performance one or the other or maybe both yeah well i think i mean so certainly diet and nutrition are huge right i i know that there's a lot of research coming out about the the importance of diet um you know physical exercise i think is a big deal i try to do that every day but i do think for me meditation Seated meditation feels like the number one thing. And the reason being that, at least for me, um, so much of my stress and so much of you know, what causes me irritation or anxiety throughout the day, it, it, it all comes from the way I'm perceiving the world, in a sense. And so one of the things I love about a meditation practice is there's a way in which it's training me to see the world slightly differently. So in other words, my ordinary way of seeing the world is there's this guy, Nate, who needs to do well, and he's got all these responsibilities that he's got to follow through on. And if something bad happens, you know, he fails, that's going to be horrendous. And it's going to be you know, the end of him, right? There's, there's so much story and so many concepts and there's so much to kind of like um, protect. And in meditation, what I begin to see is there's really just this moment that's happening and there isn't even really this guy named Nate, this stable self. You know, that's just a cluster of thoughts here and there. And, and that all of these thoughts about what could happen in the future or what's happened in the past aren't, I mean, they're like little daydreams, right? They're, they're not real. You know, my thought about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight, that's not real. That's just like a dream about tonight. Or, you know, my thought about what would happen if I totally failed and spun out in my career. That's, that's just not real. Um, so that to me is a pretty profound transformation when you begin to, to see that the only thing that's really real is what's happening in the moment. And, and it sort of reorients my whole life and my mind to the present moment. And then of course, you know, I get off the cushion and I get an email that upsets me and I'm right back <laughs> in the, you know, the old mind states, mm. but still, you know, like I think there's a, a way in which I'm maybe a little bit more removed from it, or I've at least had an experience once a day where I've seen the joke of it all. And, um, so yeah, so I would say that that now, and you know, from a brain perspective, obviously there's all sorts of research that validates why that's a helpful thing, you know? Um, so yeah, I would say that's my, my main practice. Mm -hmm. I'm a, a big fan of, uh, this idea of distancing or cognitive diffusion and seeing thoughts as just thoughts, or I like to say, that's oh, just activity of the brain. And I can just allow mm -hmm. it to pass on by as I continue to live by my values. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, there's, I, I was just going to say there's a, a quote I love from Byron Katie, who's one of my favorite teachers in this space. And she says something to the effect of um, reality or life is a mirror image of your mind. And I think that's so interesting because I really do think, you know, if you start your day with an agitated mind that's really closed and tight, the whole rest of the day, like the world will mirror that back to you, right? Like, you know, if you've ever noticed when you're in a rush, it's like everybody's going so slow on the road and all the lines are longer than usual. And, you know, the fact is life hasn't changed at all. <clears throat> you're just approaching life with a, a particular mind state. So I do think that there's a lot of power to that, that if you can reshape the, the sort of the mind, the projector that's, that's uh, helping you see life, all of a sudden the world and life itself start to change in pretty dramatic ways. Beautiful. And of course, it's mostly just your perception, but perception is everything mm, in a way. Absolutely. Uh, Nate, where can people go to find out more uh, to check out the book? Yeah, absolutely. So the company that I created is called Life Cross Training or Life XT. Um, and the book is Start Here. I also have a, my own website, which is nateclemp.com. And um, yeah, I would say the book is probably the best place to go in terms of getting a better sense of the system that we've created with nine practices and habit-forming strategies and all that stuff. Awesome. Guys, I'll put the link. Uh, Nate, you'll send me the link. I'll put the link in the uh, show notes so you guys can go and uh, check that out. Thank you very much for being on the show. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the chance to be here. So that's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, drop a five-star review, and of course, you can connect with me on social with the links in the description. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon.